We'll turn with me now in your Bibles to the book of Jude. I should say the letter of Jude or the page of Jude. It's this little tiny book, this little tiny letter at the end of your Bible. Probably the easiest way for you to find it is to find Revelation and then turn back one page. So the little letter of Jude. We're going to begin by reading verses 12 through 25. Jude, verses 12 through 25. And this will provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage this morning. The sermon this morning will come from Proverbs chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. But first, let's look at Jude chapter 1, the only chapter, verses 12 through 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. These are spots in your love feast, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. You, beloved, remember the words which were spoken by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ? How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Jude warns us, that not all those who are in the church love Jesus. I remember being at the International Conference many years ago. This is the great big family reunion for Reformed Presbyterians. It happens every four years like the Olympics. 2,000 Reformed Presbyterians go to the most exciting place on earth, central Indiana, and there they party for a week. And I remember as one little boy was about to run away from his father, his father said, Now remember, not everyone here loves Jesus. My friends, it is a warning for us that the church of Jesus Christ established in the love of Christ, growing up into the love of Christ, yet may have within it those who know nothing 
of the love of Christ. Notice the metaphors that he uses for these people who are found in the church. They are spots on your love feast. Clouds without water. Late autumn trees pulled up. Waves of the sea, crashing ships, wandering stars. These are all metaphors of death. They are a source of death within the church. But notice their crime and their problem in verses 16 through 19. They use their tongues to destroy. We are often tempted in our little view of the world to think of lies and deceit as something small and insignificant, something inconvenient or awkward, but Jude says it is not so. It says that lies are a work of Satan for the destruction of the church. With this in mind, turn back to Proverbs chapter 6. Our sermon this morning will come from Proverbs chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. We've been going through the book of Proverbs, chapters 1 through 3. Solomon has taught his son what wisdom is, how to get it, what it will do for him when he has it. In chapters 3 through 7, he's going through the eight essential qualities that must be in his son's life in order for him to be wise. He's talked about the importance of generosity, of listening, the importance of walking with others steadily, faithfully, the importance of sexual purity, He's talking now about the importance of truth. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. Here again, the word of the Lord. A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points with his finger. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Therefore his calamity shall come suddenly, suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord among brethren. Amen. And amen. I recall very vividly my first encounter with the truth. I was a little boy coming home from elementary school with a sheet of stickers. Not exciting, colorful, cool stickers. The boring green circle stickers with the face on it where the tongue is sticking out. And it says yuck across the top. You guys from the 80s, do you remember these? I was sent home from elementary school with these stickers and a homework assignment. I was to go with my mother through all the cleaning solutions in the house and put the yuck stickers on all the poisons in the house so that I knew not to eat or drink them. That seemed like a dreadfully boring assignment. I came up with a more creative, clever one. I decorated my brother's dresser with my stickers. (laughs) It didn't take long for the crime to be found out. It didn't take long for the court to be assembled. That night after chores, when my dad had come home from the barn, he gathered his sons together in the bedroom and went one by one, interrogating and investigating to find the culprit. Little did I know it was a packed court. 
He already knew the outcome of the trial. So I lied. I said it wasn't me and I knew nothing about it. He, of course, had been told by my teacher this homework assignment was coming. And so he knew who brought the stickers home. He knew who the villain was. Very slowly and patiently, he drew the truth out of me. And when at last I confessed, he led me away for correction and explained to me my original crime was bad enough. But when I added the lie to it, I added a level of hurt and distrust that would not be easily erased. Stickers could be scraped off a dresser. Lies could not be scraped from the heart, from the ears. And as the years have gone by and this memory burned forever in my brain, I've begun to realize that those stickers did not belong on bottles in my mother's cabinet. They belonged on my heart. The most poisonous thing in our house that day was my heart and my mouth which lied. Far more deadly than any chemical you can find in a plastic bottle. It destroys trust, it destroys relationships, it destroys communities. It is not a game, it is not a toy. And Solomon teaches his son this morning, he teaches us through these scriptures to love the truth and to know that there is life in truth even as there is death in lies. You see, the truth for us this morning, the sad, painful, harsh truth for us is that Satan is a liar and we like him. That we are, each one of us, by nature, liars. But the good news for us this morning is that Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the truth. And so, my friends, I urge you this morning, Solomon in the scripture text will urge us this morning to love the truth and to speak the truth in love. Now think with me about this for a while. Notice in verse 12, Solomon introduces his son to a certain individual, a worthless person, a wicked man who walks with a perverse mouth. By saying that he walks with a perverse mouth, Solomon is using that Hebrew metaphor for the way of life. He has a style of living that is deceitful. To say that he walks, he does not mean literally up and down the brick sidewalks of Antrim. He means it is his habit, his custom. The rhythm of his world. He says that he has a rhythm, a habit, a custom, a lifestyle of perverse speaking. The word is literally in Hebrew, crooked. He has a crooked mouth. This is not an aesthetic evaluation of the man's appearance. He doesn't simply mean that his mouth is misshapen. But again, he means metaphorically that his mouth is incapable of producing truth. It is a crooked mouth, a mouth from which only crooked words can proceed. This is a person whose lifestyle is defined by lies. We might say in the more contemporary speech, here is one who lives by lies, who prospers by deceit, whose increase in this world is an advantage rooted in evil that is done. And so rightly, Solomon assesses this person as a wicked man. Obviously, one whose livelihood is rooted in the lies and deceits that they bring forth is wicked. Someone who is evil. 
But he also says in verse 12 that this person is worthless. That takes a little explaining. It does not mean one who is without value. As if a life built on lies somehow rid us of our image of God. Somehow made us less than human. That's not what it means. No, this word worthless has the idea of moral bankruptcy. One whose entire existence is devoted to evil. It is the word that is used throughout the scriptures of Naboth's accusers. They were worthless men. It is used of Rehoboam's young counselors. They were worthless men. Those whose aim and ambition in life is to sin. It's to do evil, to bring about lies and deceit. This word in the Hebrew appears once in the New Testament, in the Hebrew. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, What has Christ to do with Belial? That's this Hebrew word. In short, Solomon is warning his son about Satan. He says, there is one who lives in the world devoted utterly and entirely to the working of evil. Who lives by lies. Indeed, Jesus calls him the father of lies. Sadly, we cannot restrict the application of this verse to Satan. For when Jesus calls Satan the father of lies, in context, he is referring to the Pharisees and Sadducees as his offspring. It is not merely Satan who goes through life living by lies, working out his moral bankruptcy to the destruction of all the world. No, he has descendants. He has offspring. There is a race of humanity within the world likewise devoted to evil. Likewise, in 2 Corinthians 6.15, when the Apostle Paul says, what has Christ to do with Belial? The next line is, what do believers have to do with unbelievers. The Apostle Paul puts in parallel the worthless person and the unbeliever. To put it perhaps more sharply than we would like to feel this morning, Solomon is teaching his son that human beings who have not Christ are all devoted to evil and depravity. My friends, I'm sorry The very cute, adorable babies were born in sin. They are sweet and adorable, but they are also sinners. This is what Solomon is teaching his son. It is wisdom to know who we are by nature. We are by nature conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity, Psalm 51. These things are true of all humans naturally conceived. In Romans chapter 3, there is no one who does good. No, not one. Paul would go on to say, their mouths are like adders full of poison. They speak lies. Beloved, we need a new nature. Solomon says to his son, there is in this world a humanity that must be remade, that needs a new nature. For we by nature are morally bankrupt. We by nature are wicked. We by nature live a lifestyle of lies. Something extraordinary about my first elementary school lie. No one taught me to lie. 
Have you ever noticed that with your kids? No one modeled it. No one trained them in it. You know how hard you had to work to get your kid to use the toilet? You didn't have to work to get them to lie to you. We are by nature the descendants of Satan. That is his disciples. Living with hearts of depravity aimed at evil. Bringing forth a lifestyle of lies. We need a new nature. We need a new humanity. We need to become a new creation. And so Solomon, to press this point upon his son even more, illustrates at length the, the, the length to which the man will go to do his evil. Notice in verse 12, he walks with a perverse mouth. But then in 13, he winks with his eyes, shuffles with his feet, points with his fingers. Perversity, that is crookedness, is in his heart. This wicked and worthless person not only brings forth a life based on lies, but his body, his physicality, is entirely devoted to this depravity. By winking with the eye, Solomon means that he communicates affection and friendship. He gives that friendly wink. I'm with you. I'm your friend. But his heart is perverse. He does not love you. He is deceiving you. In like manner, Solomon says he shuffles his feet. That is, he pretends to be going in the way that you are going. He acts as if he's walking alongside you. But his heart is perverse. He is not your ally. He is not your friend. He is not your partner. He points with his finger as if to say, yes, there is our common destiny. There is our common goal. Let us go together. He exhibits openly a commonness, a friendliness, a partnership. But inside his heart, he is devising evil. He is a deceiver. He is a liar. He is acting as if he is in your best interest when he is not. Rather, he is sowing discord. These last two verbs, devising evil and sowing discord, are both agricultural terms. The verb that is translated devises in the New King James is actually to plow or to engrave. This wicked, worthless person is a farmer of sin. He plows into the soil of human hearts evil. And he sows the seeds of discord in human congregations and assemblies. This wicked, worthless person is devoted not only to his own depravity, but to bringing about the depravity of everyone else. This is, again, clearly Satan, who is said to appear to us as an angel of light, one who likes to manifest himself as our ally and friend, who says sweetly to Eve in the garden, Will you really die? Won't you be like God? Acting as if he were her ally and in her best interest. Does he not come beside the hungry, starving Christ in the wilderness and say, Come, make bread. Here are stones. Eat. Does he not say to the Christ, You have the promise from Psalm 92 that if if you launch yourself from the top of the temple, angels will bear you up and you won't even bruise a toe. Of course, he overlooks the irony that he's about to have his head crushed. I'll get to that later. Solomon warns his son, 
That Satan is at work in the world, a worthless, that is morally bankrupt and wicked creature who lives by lies, pretending to be a friend and ally only to lead us astray. And of course, it's not uniquely Satan either. No, we as fallen humans know how to bend all of our physical reality to an expression of sin. If we were to sit here and survey this morning, which part of your body have you not sinned with? I mean, maybe my hair? I don't know. I couldn't come up with anything for that one. But from heel to hair, are we not sinful? Constantly seeking to express from this evil heart the full width and breadth of our depravity. We, by nature, are farmers of sin, sowing evil in our souls and bringing forth the fruits of discord and disharmony. We need a new nature and we need a new body. A body not enslaved to earthly appetites. A body which is not devoted utterly to selfishness and to self-expression. We need a new nature. We need a new body. And so in verse 15, Solomon concludes for his son, therefore, because his nature is entirely depraved, because his work in the world is entirely evil, because he has devoted himself to depravity, his calamity will come suddenly. It is the just and natural outcome. It will come suddenly, he says twice. Suddenly the calamity will come. Suddenly he will be broken. By saying it twice, Solomon emphasizes the unexpected and immediate nature of his destruction. He will be broken without remedy. There is, I like the ESV's translation if you have that. He will be broken without healing. It will be a total destruction. It will be a complete and unexpected destruction. Of course, we see this so beautifully expressed in the experience of Satan. Who, when Christ came into the world, was cast down and bound as a strong man, Jesus taught. He sent out his disciples and they cast out demons. And Jesus said, I saw Satan cast down. And when he cast out demons, he said, I have bound the strong man. But no more binding was fully more complete than that first Sunday when Jesus arose from the dead and suddenly, without remedy, sin and Satan died. You see, there is this new nature that we need and it is ours in Christ Jesus. The calamity to which we look the calamity to which this world is cratering, the calamity to which all of the narratives and stories of humanity are moving, is in fact what Tolkien called the you-catastrophe, the good-catastrophe. For when Satan bent all his evil malice and brought forth all the expressions of his lies and deceit, so that the Lord of glory should be crucified, he unexpectedly, immediately, and irrevocably destroyed himself and his kingdom forever. How glorious the grace of God. That we who need a new nature have that new nature in Christ. 
And that we who need a new body have that body in Christ, who in his calamity brought calamity upon Satan and all who follow him. He was broken without remedy, but not so Christ. He was broken on the cross, but raised from the dead to live and reign forevermore. In his resurrection, my friends, we have the answer to these verses. So then Solomon trains his son and how to live the resurrection life. First, notice in verse 16, there are six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. The six things that the Lord hates have been previously mentioned in verses 12 through 15. The perverse mouth, the winking eye, the shuffling feet, the pointing fingers, the perverse heart that devises evil continually, the sowing of discord. The Lord hates the satanic work. He hates the corruption of his creation. He hates the lies and the deceit that drives humans apart. He hates the lack of love in us. Yes, indeed, Solomon then adds a seventh in his next list, verses 17 through 19. They are in parallel with the first six. The proud look, the lying tongue, the hands that shed innocent blood, the heart that devises wicked plans, the feet that are swift in running to evil, the one who sows discord. These six are the same, only intensified and increased. The seventh is the false witness who speaks lies. Solomon in this way shows us a sanctifying hatred of God for these sins. God not only hates these things, he hates them in a way that he makes them intolerable. He will remove them from the earth. He will deal with them justly, righteously. He will change humanity. He will sanctify his saints and bring about a new humanity. Notice first that there is a proud look. This winking eye, this fiction of friendship, is swept away and is an unmasked arrogance that now lays laid bare. The same conceit that motivated the eye to wink once before is now a conceit exposed and lay bare. Now that we see the truth of who we really are, not the winking friend feigning affection, but really conceited, selfish sinners who look with pride upon one another, who sit with tortured self-significance, thinking that somehow if you loved me more, I'd be a better person, thinking that in my pride, I am the center of my own story. But when this truth is laid into the light, and I see in the mirror the proud look that really marks who I am. Something happens. I become like the tax collector in Jesus' parable. Do you remember where his face was? It was downcast. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The mirror of the scriptures lays bare the pride of our hearts. It exposes our intentions and sees in us the selfishness that must go. A lying tongue. We who were speaking with perverse mouth, a crooked mouth, could only bring out a crooked word, now has a lying tongue. A devoted lashing, a weapon, James calls it, 
he speaks very clearly. It is like a conflagration. Have you seen the wildfires of the West? Eating up the trees in the mountains? Here we have lies spewing from the tongue, saturating the souls of humans all around us and destroying them. Hands that shed innocent blood, fingers which once merely pointed, now seize on life and take it. Hands that shed innocent blood. Beneath all this is a heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift to running to evil. They no longer shuffle in pretended friendship. No, now they are open and out, sprinting to sin. The depravity has come to its full expression. And this one sows discord among brethren. They break down the very fiber of the community. They destroy the world around us. This heart gives birth to death, as James has promised. This false witness who speaks lies. Solomon is teaching his son that the Lord hates the way that humanity has turned itself into a cesspool of sin. The Lord hates the way we give ourselves in a relentless fashion to the full expression of our wickedness. And he's going to do something about it. He's going to address it. How will he do it? Notice again this description. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Sound like anyone you know? A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. You see... It is an apt description of Satan, who in the beginning inhabited a serpent and slithered his way into the Garden of Eden, and there he whispered lies to Eve. There he deceived her, and she ate. She gave to her husband, and he ate, and in them we fell into the sin and misery we now feel and experience. Satan once more entered a garden, this time not Eden, but Gethsemane. Not slithering like a snake, but running like a man. For in the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he handed a morsel of bread to Judas Iscariot, and when Judas ate the bread, Satan entered him. In both gardens, there was Satan spewing his lies. And in that garden of Gethsemane, that Satan-enrobed Judas went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi. Though he learned nothing from him, though he knew nothing of his love, nothing of his grace, nothing of his truth, yet he dared lie and call him Rabbi. He went up to him and said, Rabbi, even though he did not follow him. He did not walk in his ways. He did not keep his commands. He did not love the brethren. He sowed discord and he chased them away from that garden of Gethsemane. He scattered the disciples of Jesus Christ, filling them with fear and causing them to hide. He dared lie and he called him rabbi. Though he was no follower of Christ. Worst of all, he kissed him. He went up to him and he said, Rabbi, and he planted his lips on his cheek 
or perhaps his mouth, I don't know. And when he kissed him, he pledged in that moment his love and his loyalty, when in fact in his heart he was screaming, die. For this is the fruit of lies. It is death. It is death. But in this extraordinary moment, where Satan is bending all his power and bringing forth all his deceit to the destruction of the Holy One of glory, where he would cause Judas and Judas would go willingly with him to this fullness of deceit and depravity to lie and to feign love and friendship and loyalty to this Christ he was crucifying. It was the very act that was saving sinners. You know how glorious this is? It is so sweet. It is so glorious because my beloved, when we put ourselves in the roadmap of Scripture, we find we are closer to Judas than we are to Jesus. We are by nature liars and sinners. We are by nature the offspring of Satan Loving lies, building our lives on lies, and finding that those lies which have crucified Christ have turned out to be yet true. For though Satan lied in the garden, promising Judas his life would be better without Jesus, and though Judas lied in the garden saying of Jesus, I love him, he's my rabbi. In the end, my friends, God did not lie. In fact, he proved all the world a liar and himself the truth. For on the third day, on Sunday morning, according to Romans chapter 1, he raised Jesus from the dead, declaring him the Son of God with glory and great power. We have, every Sunday, the living proof that our God does not lie. And that all the world can lie, and our hearts can lie, and Satan can lie to us. But there is a truth that is greater than death. A truth on which death dies. A truth, and that is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to seek and save sinners of whom I am chief. This, my friends, is the good news of Proverbs chapter 6. That though we by nature are worthless, broken, beyond remedy, we have a Christ who raises the dead. We have a Christ who makes of us a new creation The old is gone, the new is come. So let's love the truth. Have you lost hope? Have you lost hope in this world? Have you lost hope in your marriage? Have you lost hope in your children? Have you lost hope in your own sanctification? Then my friends, I have good news for you today. We have a God who raises the dead. And there is nothing under the sun He cannot save with His Son, Jesus Christ. Beloved, we lie. But Jesus is the truth. He is the truth. So love the truth. 
and speak the truth with love. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day. We give you thanks that you have given us a day of rest and of worship. A day to enter into the heavenly places and to leave behind the earthly mess. We give you thanks, O God, for this beautiful day in which grace and glory is given to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the word that we have heard, that you have shown to us how wonderful is our Jesus. We pray now that you would write this truth upon our hearts, that you would bind it into our minds and bring it forth from our mouths and hands, that we might speak and live the truth we have now heard. May it transform us into better lovers of Jesus, May it transform us into faithful servants of Jesus. We give you thanks for this hope, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.